going to be called Six Captains from Stratford. Well, when I started doing my research, it was like kicking into an anthill, so I think I'm going to call it All Them Captains from Stratford. I'd like to uh, uh, read to you uh, a little piece from the uh, log of the schooner Coast Pilot. Wednesday morning, June 19, 1861, Montevideo Harbor. A little cloudy, 9 a.m. clear. Mr. Barrymore came on board and spent an hour with him. Gave me an invitation to go on board steamer Pulaski to have a chat with Flag Officer Sands. Went on board, Flag Officer had gone away. Thursday morning, June 20th, passing clouds, strong breeze from south-southeast. At 10 a.m., one lighter loaded and left. Went on board Pulaski. Handed one letter to Flag Officer's secretary, to J.B. Maxwell, to go in common mailbag. One to Flag Officer Sands for my wife, and $115 in Brazilian gold, which says he will hand with the letter to my wife himself. Spent the remainder of the day in looking to my business and bidding goodbye and Godspeed to the officers of the United States Frigate Congress, which is to sail tomorrow direct for Boston. And this is from the private journal of Truman Hotchkiss, who was half, uh, captain of the schooner Coast Pilot. So picture, if you will, a ship's cabin. It's a low, dark paneled room rolling slightly in the harbor swells, and the sunlight's reflected from the waves into the overhead of the cabin. Now there's four men in the room, and three of these men are from Stratford. Captain Hotchkiss, he's in coastal trade in North Central South America in the Atlantic with his schooner. And crusty little Commodore Sands, he's a veteran naval, a naval officer. <clears throat> William Barrier, a Barrymore, who is a young naval officer, new to the squadron. And the fourth man is a 19-year-old midshipman who was two years out of the Naval Academy, picked by the Commodore to be his aide, and his name is Alfred Thayer Mahan. Now, in the next day, the Congress will sail for Boston, and it's going to take the Commodore, now in his 60s, to semi-retirement. It's going to take the young master's mate, Barrymore, to further service and glory in the war. And it's going to take the young midshipman to a long naval career, in which he will become the most outstanding naval historian of all time and will have a profound effect upon the course of the world's nation's histories for the next century. Now, this chance encounter in 1861 of men from Stratford in these far corners of the world, this kind of thing, this isn't the first time that it occurred in Hong Kong, in Liverpool, along the Gold Coast, at New Providence, Key West, for already, these men from Stratford had been sailing the seas around the world and influencing the world for 200 years or more. Now, uh, let's have lights and I want to show you a slide. Across the Atlantic, uh, I have a picture of Mayflower too here. Uh, her predecessor, the ship that she is a replica of, and other ships of that age, look like this. But it's quite unlikely that any of these brought our people directly to Stratford. We don't know how the first settlers arrived at Stratford, but the route by land from Hartford in the 1600s was just about impassable. It was a path, and of course with all the, uh, the uh, marshes and, and the uh, harbors and, and uh, cuts, and no bridges, no ferries in, in the uh, early 1600s. It's nearly certain that these people came to Stratford by sea. And the vessel that they sailed into Stratford Harbor with, Max Harbor it's called now, uh, might have been built along some inlet in the Connecticut or uh, maybe in Massachusetts Bay and would look like this. Next slide. This, by the way, is, is a uh, model of the uh, Pinnace, Virginia. These were called Pinnaces. And uh, Virginia was the first vessel built in, in North America. And this very same type of vessel, quite similar to European vessels of, of the uh, same year, are what were used in the 1600s all along the coast. And it's quite likely that some, if not all, of the people in Stratford came here in those. 
Now, probably the first ship's carpenter in Stratford was Moses Wheeler, the ferryman. We believe he, he uh, was a shipwright. Uh, between 1650 and 1680, Joseph Hawley built vessels here and engaged in trade. Uh, in, for example, in 1678, he bought an eighth of a ship. It's in the records that uh, on October 27, 1678, this writing witnessed that John Rogers of New London in the colony of Connecticut do acknowledge that I have received of Joseph Hawley of Stratford the full and just sum of 58 pounds, one shilling, two pence which said money was improved in the building of a ship, which said ship now rideth in Fairfield Harbor, called the John and Esther. So 58 pounds for an eighth of a ship. Uh, in 1680, John Prentice bought this uh, John and Esther, uh, the shares of the John and Esther from Hawley. In 1679, uh, Richard uh, Blackleach spent 60 pounds for an eighth of a ship. The name is the Ketch Trial of Milford. Uh, so, I guess the going price is approximately 60 pounds for an eighth of a ship these days. In 1696, James Bennett is recorded as building a ship in town. And in 1702, Stratford was one of eight ports of entry in the colony of Connecticut. It had its own naval officer, uh, and its, its own naval office with its officer for collecting custom fees, 1702. Now even Hartford didn't have a, a uh, uh, or was not a port of entry in the colony uh, at that point in time, but Stratford was, one of eight of them. Stratford's exports uh, in, in uh, those days seems to have consisted largely of grain and flour, beef and pork. These, this kind of thing went to Boston and, and uh, to New York. Horses went to the West Indies. Uh, it's interesting that in 1690, it's on record, that the town voted to forbid shipping out timber for clapboards or pipe staves or hoops or rails or building lumber because of the scarcity of, of uh, timber uh, in the area. It was forbidden to be exported. So apparently there was quite an export trade uh, before 1700. And uh, a slide, please. Uh, Captain Blakeman, uh, this isn't all that easy to read. 
but it says on that uh, gravestone that he was lost at sea on his passage from Bermuda to New Providence in August 1807, age 29 years. Next one. <clears throat> on one side of this is Captain William Booth, age 45 years. Uh, drowned in Boston Bay, 18th of October, 1810. And on the other side of this, his son, David Booth, age 17 years, drowned the same day in the same place. And Isaac Booth, age 27 years, also. You find uh, Captain Birdsey Brook, who with his crew was lost at sea in September 1789, in the 22nd year of his age. Not only do you find these things, but listen to the ages of, the, of these skippers. A great many of them were in their 20s. Uh, Captain William Thompson, who died at sea December 4th, 1812, age 47 years. Benjamin Curtis, Reuben Curtis, Henry Davis. Captain Ezra Hubble, lost at sea September 1801, in the 35th year of his age. Captain Phineas Lovejoy, Jr. Captain Samuel Wakely. Now, uh, he was a transatlantic skipper. He was employed as a, as a shipmaster uh, before the Revolution, transporting settlers from Europe. And in those days, it wasn't easy. One of his voyages lasted so long that they were reduced to near starvation by the time they got to this side of the Atlantic. There were the Gorhams who lived at, at Stratford Harbor. As a matter of fact, they lived in the house that, that uh, I live in now. Uh, these people were ship owners and shipmasters. Nathan Gorham, born 1751, he sailed together to the West Indies with the John Barlow that I mentioned earlier. And many others did this until the revolution destroyed the trade. In 1768, the Grand Cannon bought Abel Beach's home. Uh, this is the one west of the Gorhams, and uh, used to be an all red salt box that was torn down in 1968. Uh, and also, he bought from Abel Beach his brig, which he sent trading to the West Indies. So there was a great deal of this, this uh, commerce going on before the revolution. But the revolution stopped it cold. I'd like to tell you now about one of Stratford's captains, David Hawley, the son of the American Revolution. Slide. When, uh, when England's colonies fought the king, many men of Stratford served at sea. Uh, in 1776, David Hawley served the flag, and the flag he served is the flag of the Continental Navy. It's the Cambridge flag. It's got the blue canton. It's got the crosses of St. Andrew and St. George, uh, but it has the 13 stripes that our present flag has. And that flag flies high from the schooner Royal Savage, which was one of Hawley's vessels. Now, early in the war, the first thing we know that he did was to sail down to the West Indies and return with gunpowder for the towns of Stratford and Fairfield. Then, in March 1776, he set out in command of a privateer, which was commissioned by Governor Trumbull. Uh, a privateer, by the way, is, uh, is a commissioned ship. When two countries were at war, the uh, authorities of one country would uh, create a, a commission, a piece of paper, which said that it was all right for this privateer to prey upon the commerce of the nation of which they were an enemy. He couldn't go out and shoot up anybody's boats. That would be piracy. But against the enemy, he could do this. And if he was captured, he would be treated uh, just like a, a uh, sailor or a soldier in the, in the regular uh, Navy or Army. This was a privateer. So Polly was in command of a privateer in 1776. As a matter of fact, he was in command of for 14 days before he was captured by, by a British ship. Uh, the Connecticut uh, Gazette uh, of 20 May 1776 says, uh, uh, Captain David Hawley, who came to Hartford last Saturday from Halifax, where he had been prisoner and where he left on April 14th, was captured with his, with his sloop by the British armed schooner Bologna on March 17, 1776 when he sailed out of Stratford. He was plundered and damned together with his crew and his country. They were all taken and put aboard the Bologna. About 10 o'clock at night, they joined the Rose, Glasgow, and Swan, men of war. And by the way, if you're ever up at Newport, you can see a, an exact replica of the Rose sitting up there. And they all went on board the Rose. The next day, they sailed into Newport. 
when he obtained liberty to go on board his sloop to get his clothes, where he found his chest had been plundered. He and his crew were prisoners in the Glasgow and were taken to Halifax April 10th. Captain Hawley, with eight others, made his escape in a small boat and came to New York. Well, in August of that year, the legislature commanded Hawley to raise a naval detachment to serve under Benedict Arnold in the Northern Department. He enlisted 25 men, and he soon found himself in charge of the 50-man the, uh, schooner, Royal Savage, on Lake Champlain. And you see it here. Now, this Royal Savage had been built under Benedict Arnold's direction. He was still on our side then, by the way. Uh, built under Arnold's direction in amount of four six-pound guns and eight four-pound guns. Uh, for your information, those aren't very big guns. Uh, in, the, in the battle uh, on, on uh, Lake Champlain, on the 12th of October, 1776, uh, while Hawley was beating up wind, and, and uh, these things didn't beat the wind all that well, really, and he didn't have sufficient room to tack. And she came, became stranded on Valcour Island. And the British schooner Carlton came along, and, and uh, so he was unable to, or Hawley was unable to refloat the Royal Savage, so he abandoned her to the British, who burned her that night. Score two. On 18 August, 1776, let's take a look at David Hawley. Uh, next slide. That's good. Uh, that's a profile of Hawley as it appears in Bowles' uh, book. On 18 August, 1776, the Connecticut Navy ship, the Connecticut Navy ship, Connecticut had its own navy, the Oliver Cromwell, and they chose good names, <laughs> crossed the bar at Saybrook, and she was the largest ship to that date ever to do so, although she was 80 feet keel, about 27 feet beam, pretty beamy, and 12 feet draft. And she was commanded by William Coyote. Now, uh, so Oliver Cromwell sailed to New London to be provisioned. And in January 77, the furnace up at Salisbury uh, was ordered to cast 200 hand grenades and a ton of swivel shot. On the 28th of January, the crew was ordered aboard. David Hawley was her second lieutenant. Now, there were a lot of delays in starting out and a bunch of frustrating problems, apparently. So Hawley and four other lieutenants requested requested dismissal, and the governor granted it. So on the 3rd of April that year, we find Governor Trumbull has commissioned Hawley to the state sloop Skyler. Six guns, 40 men, about the same size as the one he'd been sailing on Lake Champlain. Now, uh, here's where he evens the score. Cruising the Sound, first he captured the sloop Princess Mary, and she was on her way down to the British garrison in New York, and he sent her into Fairfield. Uh, on the 4th of June, he took the 40-ton sloop Sally. That's 40 tons. It's as big as his own vessel. And Sally was bound for Huntington, Long Island. At the end of July, the sloop Anne, bound to Mamaroneck with provisions. Uh, the uh, Redcoats had Mamaroneck. On the same day, the sloop Peggy, with a cargo of fuel for the British Army. Uh, fuel meaning wood. Uh, then the sloops Fanny and Liberty. The Dolphin, on her way to Flushing. Uh, Lieutenant John Jones of Milford, by the way, was put aboard the Dolphin to bring that into uh, Norfolk for libel proceedings. Now, libel proceedings, when a privateer captured a vessel, he sent her into one of his ports, his own government, in this case, the, the uh, uh, Connecticut uh, colonial government, Governor Trumbull's government. Uh, the judges at, at Norfolk looked it over and said, yea, uh, it is worth so much, and we do, in fact, allow David Holy possession of it, except for the little cut that the States there, the government takes. So altogether here, there were eight prizes. Now, in the meantime, General Putnam uh, up here is, is uh, scheming to cut off supplies to the British in New York. And his method of doing that is going to be to attack northern Long Island. So on December 9th that year, this is 1777, uh, Hawley and the Schuyler were sent across the Sound with two other schooners and they had to protect a convoy of four transports full of troops. Now, transports means picture a huge rowboat. Uh, they were really uh, uh, galleys, uh, let's say, what we say, uh, transports. And the plan was for these vessels to cross the Sound from Norwalk, and they were going to attack Sepaka on, on the North Shore. 
Now, at dawn, however, the expedition found themselves within two miles of the British frigate Falcon. Whoops. Schuyler was forced ashore and surrendered. David Hawley uh, surrendered. So now it's eight to three. Uh, he surrendered along with Colonel Webb, Colonel Ely, and 62 of their men. Now, in spite of this, they say the attack did uh, uh, succeed. But Hawley uh, was made a prisoner. He was again exchanged. And he continued as a privateer in Long Island Sound. In 1779, uh, he obtained the sloop Guilford at New Haven. A Captain William Knott had been operating it. Uh, unfortunately, 11 days later, the British came right into New Haven and captured the Guilford at her slip. And the report of the, the court of inquiry, however, that September was that September, was Captain Hawley being acquitted without the least blame or misconduct. In November 79, he commanded a volunteer party of 20 men. They crossed the Sound out to Long Island, and they went into Suffolk County and brought back Mr. Thomas Jones, Judge Thomas Jones. Now, he was one of the judges of the Ministerial Supreme Court of the Crown. Now, he is a real good hostage. And they kept him, and I've forgotten who now, but they traded him later on for somebody real big. That's, that's the way it worked. Uh, the next spring, April 20, 1780, he led three armed boats from Fairfield over to Blue Point, Long Island, and he captured 11 sail of British and Tory vessels. Captured 11 of them on this one trip. <coughs> Four of these, including one richly laden with West India goods, he brought back to Fairfield and libeled. The same month, in John Clark's armed whaleboat, he captures the sloop Sally, 30 tons with rum, molasses, beef, and pork as cargo. Throughout 1780, he continues as a privateer. And on March 16, 1781, he has the armed boats, retaliation, and restoration. 1782, he's in command of the sloop Seaflow, four guns, 30 men. So throughout the war, this man, David Hawley, performed important naval services to the colony, and he libeled many boats and much cargo in the, uh, in the state courts. Uh, he's credited with capture of over 20 sail during the war. After the war, he continued to go to, a, uh, to sea until he died in 1807 at age 66. I have stories here of, of other Stratford captains who, who uh, uh, were active during the Revolutionary War. Uh, Commodore Isaac Hall, you know, with the Constitution and, and, and the uh, uh, Guerriere. Uh, Commodore Hall, Derby man. Well, Commodore Hall, Hall's father uh, was a, uh, a good naval man, too. His name was Joseph Hall. And he commanded one of the state's commission boats used in raids and for privateering. And uh, cruising down to Frog's Neck on one occasion, uh, Hall came upon a schooner of 90 tons, mounting 10 guns. And she was protecting a group of, of smaller boats who were loading wood for the British Army. So after darkness, Hall captured one of these boats, and he carefully sealed his crew of 50 men on board that boat. So a little after midnight, he weighed anchor, and he bore down on the gunboat. Now, when he was hailed by the sentry uh, and, and uh, yelled at, cautioned against running afoul of the gunboat, they didn't know who he was, uh, but uh, they uh, yelled out, watch out, or you'll run afoul of the gunboat. What he did was yell, no, no, room enough. And he kept his course, and he ran into the schooner's bow, he boarded her, and he captured her. So, with British colors flying and his own boat launched up, he had the nerve to pull his own boat up on her deck. He sailed the gunboat past three unsuspecting enemy ships off Eaton's neck, and he took her into Black Rock Harbor. Joseph Hall. Such were our ship's masters. Uh, I, I can uh, go on with, with uh, the stories of, of uh, these men during the Revolution and right after this. But I, I'd like to, to uh, advance uh, to another uh, age here. Uh, may I have a slide? Before I do, uh, I want to say that, that uh, uh, although this is of a, a much later period, uh, some of the revolutionary uh, folks had the same general type of construction. They were a little beefier, uh, but that general type of uh, construction was begun to be used in the revolutionary period. 
Let me tell you a little bit, though, about Yankee skippers in the Canton trade, because this is the fascinating part of our town's sea history, and not many people know too much about it. Uh, I'm, by the way, I'm, I'm, uh, <clears throat> I'm going to, to uh, skip Captain Sterling here. He's a story unto himself, and I'm going to tell you some of those that you might know less of. Now, having sacrificed our trade with the West Indies by seceding from the empire, America had to look somewhere else for trade, and she looked as far as China. Uh, as early as 1785, a ship from Salem, the Empress of China, visited Canton, and she was the first American ship to anchor in Wampoa Reach. One of the first local men to trade to Canton was Captain Ezekiel Hubble. Now, he lived over in Bridgeport Village, uh, actually, but I think you could still call him a, a Stratfordite. Uh, sailed uh, out of the uh, Harbor, actually. Now, when he set sail for the Pacific from New York in 1799, he had already traded in the Atlantic for quite a few years. He started as a clerk aboard Richard and Amos Hubble's vessel, vessels between Newfield and the West Indies back in 1782 at age 14 between Newfield and the West Indies. And I might uh, point out here that one of the trades between Newfield and, and West Indies was from, you know where the Shell oil tanks are now? Well, there was a beautiful four-story mill uh, there in the late 1700s and up until uh, 1855. And there had been prior mills there, too. This is the place that was called Eagle's Nest. And uh, the, uh, the big mill, the, the uh, last mill that was there, ground grain, and the ships came right up alongside the, the uh, mill at that point, loaded up with this grain, took it to the West Indies. So when he says, from Newfield to the West Indies, it may very well be that these other bubbles that he worked for were in fact taking grain down there from, from, uh, that, uh, from that mill. Now, uh, Ezekiel Hubble uh, eventually commanded uh, the vessels of, of uh, his uh, relatives here as the merchant navigator. And merchant navigator is a term, I, I've been using the term captain shipmaster, but the term merchant navigator or supercargo are the terms for the people who have charge of, of the business of the, uh, uh, of the ship. They take it to places, they act as the agents of the owners, they sell things, they buy other things, Sometimes they're even under instruction to sell the ship. And uh, that is the, the merchant navigator uh, as separated from the master who was a good sailor who sailed the vessel. Many times later they became the same man. But in the earlier days they were often uh, separate persons. The merchant navigator or supercargo and the uh, master or actual uh, skipper. In 1797, uh, he became managing owner, slide, of the brig Carolyn and uh, later of the ship uh, Sally and uh, Betsy. Uh, a brig, by the way, is a two-masted square-sailed uh, vessel. Uh, Carolyn uh, would have looked like a, a slightly older version of this. Uh, in 1797 period, Carolyn would probably have had a white stripe with black splotches uh, down to it, which would, would uh, be made to look like gun ports. And the reason for this is we still had pirates in the Caribbean in those days. So the brig you see here is a little later period than uh, Carolyn would have been. But he made several voyages to Havana and in command of the armed ship Citizen. Now Citizen had 50, had 50 men aboard, carried 16 guns. So the armed ship were needed. In 1798, Citizen was halted by a British cruiser, taken up to Halifax and examined and then released. The New York Commercial Advertiser of December 6, 1798, reports the Citizen just coming in from Havana with 18 vessels under convoy. Now she had the guns, so they gathered up a whole fleet of them and she helped protect these other 18 vessels. Uh, and a little note there saying, left a French privateer lying off Havana, but she did not seem inclined to come out. Now, it wasn't only the British who were bugging us in 1798-99, but it was the French, too. 
In fact, in, in 1799, we nearly went to war with France over this problem. So, it, uh, the men boys and with cargo. When they got down to Patagonia, off the east coast of South America, they put into a har harbor and they cleaned the ship of barnacles and, and seaweed. Slide. And in February of that year, they passed stormy Cape Horn. And here you see uh, what uh, Enterprise might very well have uh, looked like. A merchant ship with ports making her look like a, a uh, uh, vessel. I'm sure if she was going around stormy Cape Horn, there wouldn't have been that many other ships around because they, uh, it wasn't that frequent. In March 1800, they up the west coast of South America, uh, they anchored in Valparaiso Harbor. <clears throat> Valparaiso, Spanish South America. And they were tired and they were sick with scurvy because they had been out from October to March just to get around to there from New York. So uh, Hubble got aboard a donkey and went over to San Diego, overland to San Diego. <clears throat> and he obtained permission of the Spanish governor to sell his, his cargo in Conception Bay there. Now, uh, when he sailed into Conception Bay, however, he was ambushed by the Spanish troops. Well, what happened? The governor, uh, the governor's word was good, but, but uh, he wasn't all that powerful either. His, uh, what he had done very foolishly was to, to give the troops the, the uh, silver to take down to pay for the, uh, to pay the Yankee for the cargo. And uh, he didn't give them a leader who was on his side, I guess. So they rebelled, stole the silver, tried to capture the ship ship escaped and headed north along the coast. And so Hubble went all the way up the coast of North America to Nootka Sound, and he traded there for Indian furs. Then he visited Russian Kamchatka, traded for more furs undoubtedly at this Russian trading post. Then he went over to the Sandwich Islands and went to Canton. Now this was the standard route at the time. You get furs in, in, uh, in North America and you trade them for tea. So, with a cargo of cheap bohia tea and other goods, in January, he sailed from Canton and he arrived off Newfield in June 1802, 140 days from Canton to New York. Hubble, in this trip, was this uh, Stratford man, Newfield man, was the first New York captain to, to circumnavigate the globe. And let's take a look at his navigation book. Slide. I don't know how much you folks know about uh, uh, navigation, uh, and, but getting latitude, getting your distance from the equator wasn't all that uh, difficult. But until we had good clocks, good chronometers, it was very difficult to tell how far west of Greenwich you were, uh, what your longitude was. But some people had worked out clever ways of doing it. And the British East India Co Company had this kind of book uh, published which by measuring the distance uh, of the moon from a uh, star, the distance of the moon east and west from a star, obviously the moon moves different amounts every, every day, but the stars are relatively constant. And by measuring the moon's distance east or west from a, a star, you can say, ha, huh, the moon is supposed to be at, at such and such a place, and, uh, and uh, or you, you put it the other way. You say, if the moon is at such and such a place, the time is so and so. And you can work this out from this kind of book and determine exactly what time it is where you are uh, when it's 12 o'clock at Greenwich, uh, let's say. It wasn't exact, really, but it was kind of a clever little uh, thing. And I had never seen one of these books until I was doing this research, and it turns out that we own it. It belongs in the, uh, uh, in the library of the Historical Society means of determining longitude. Uh, in 1803 and 1804, and again in 1804 and 1805, Hubble sailed the 200-ton ship Catherine Ray to Canton back with a cargo of silks this time. Silk was pretty good stuff to pick up over there, too. In May 1805, in his old ship Citizen, he returned to Canton. By this time, the Chinese were getting uh, a little tired of furs. You know, it's not all that cold in Canton. Uh, and and uh, what they were accepting was, was a Spanish coin. So it now became very popular to pick up Spanish coin by trading in South America. 
and taken the silver to purchase things, purchase silk, and he returned in May 1806. Uh, slide. This is what Canton looked like uh, at the time, by the way, and it is the uh, only Chinese port uh, which was open to people from the West. China would not permit foreigners in any other port. In fact, they wouldn't permit them in the city of Canton itself. The only trading was done here in a, in a one small area, this one small square with these buildings around it. And it was actually dangerous for a Yankee or, or an uh, Englishman or, or uh, Portuguese or, or uh, uh, any European to go anywhere else in China. Trading was permitted only in, Camp in Canton. Uh, then you would go down the uh, Canton River, about 70 miles to its mouth, and uh, you would stay either on the one side, either a Portuguese Macau, which has been settled for about a century at this point, or on the other side in, in the, in the, on an island known as Hong Kong. Now, when he bought the, uh, in, uh, in October 1807, he commanded the ship Augustus. And this was owned by a few other people plus himself. And he delivered cotton to Canton this time and loaded up with tea. Now, to buy the tea, he left a note for $103,000. And he left it with one of the most famous of these Cantonese Hong merchants, whose name was Hukwa. Let's see Hukwa's picture. There he is. The tea was landed in Amsterdam. Now, he went around west this time into Europe. He landed the tea at Amsterdam in the warehouses of, guess who, Louis Bonaparte, who was king of Holland at that time, you know, the emperor's brother. And then Augustus returned to New York in December 1808, and he paid his note. Uh, Hukwa's receipt read, received pay in full with interest as adjusted, $119,000, Hukwa. And underneath this, Captain Hubble appears to have written, paid, thank God. <laughs> now, until the opening of the treaty ports in 1842, as I said, Westerners were required to anchor at, at, at a place called uh, Wampoa, or Wampoa Reach. Uh, let's take a look at it. This is 80 miles, 70 miles up the river, 10 miles down the river from Canton. And from here, they had to take their cargo in small boats up to the homes to sell them. They were restricted to a small area outside the city. Uh, after this trip to uh, Canton, and by the way, uh, if you look carefully uh, at that, you can look up the river there toward, uh, yeah, you're looking up the river toward Canton, and if you study some of those buildings, and later on, look at one of the charts, which you will see over there on the wall, you will see some of the pagodas labeled on the chart, which was made in 1819, which are in this painting, which was made in the 1830. Uh, when Hubble came back to, the, state, to uh, the States, he remained ashore until 1817. And then he took the citizen, the ship citizen, to uh, Manila. And she, he made two more trips to Manila for sugar. In 1821, he commanded a new ship, and it was called Ajax. He took back to Manila, and he left his two sons there to establish a trading house. Uh, he made four voyages to Manila in Ajax before he sold her. And within four months of her sale, which was in August 1825, Ajax foundered in the Atlantic. Now, in June 1825, Hubble made a trip, another trip to Manila, and he's got a new ship now called Sabina. And again, in December 1826, he took Sabina to uh, a whole series of places and back to New York. And this was his last voyage, apparently. Uh, Ezekiel Hummel had sailed over 245,000 miles. Uh, if you go down to uh, New York, well, if you go down to the National Archives now, and, uh, which is what I did, and uh, look through the, uh, actually, this is what Vivian did. I put her to work doing this uh, a couple weeks ago when we were down there. If you look through the records of the New York Custom House and the National Archives, you'll see that just about once a year, Hubble comes in from Manila or somewhere. April 12, 1819, ship citizen from Manila. February 2, 1820, Brig Laura Ann, Havana. May 15, 1822, Ajax, Manila. 1823, Ajax, Manila. Uh, 1824, Ajax, Manila. 
1825, Ajax from Manila. Uh, and then something happens here, uh, because also in 1825, and within a month, the ship Sabina from Manila. So obviously, one of Hubble's sons was also sailing one of these ships. And the custom house records don't tell us which one. But ship Ajax under Hubble on May 22nd, and ship Sabina under Hubble on April 25th, both came from Manila that year. So he was doing a pretty good sugar business, I think. Uh, another captain, ship's, uh, Stratford uh, ship's captain that uh, you probably don't know uh, too well, is Captain George Dowdall. In 1822, uh, he was master of the ship Superior. Now, Dowdall is the uh, uh, man who, in 1826, four years after this, his wife's father, General Matthias Nichol, supervised the building of Dowdall's home on Elm Street while Dowdall was at sea. This home was later famous as the Phelps Mansion, the place of the Stratford knocking. Now, the ship Ajax, which Dowdall later commanded, was not the one Captain Hubble had operated. It was apparently a much larger ship, pretty close to 600 tons. Uh, Captain da George Dowdall's epitaph is in the Episcopal burial ground, and you can read it. Died at Canton in China on the first day of November, 1829, where his remains are interred. On the other side of the same uh, uh, obelisk reads, George, well, I, there's a little more to this one. George Robert Dowdall, son-in-law of General Matthias Nichol in the 47th year of his uh, age, commander of the ship Ajax. In his profession, he was inferior to none, and in the discharge of all social duties, his husband, father, friend, and citizen, few excelled him. On the other side, it says, also died at Canton on the 27th of October, 1829, in the 31st year of his age, Edward Nichol, first officer of the ship Ajax. Uh, all I can see is it was uh, some kind of plague that they had picked up, and both the skipper and his uh, brother-in-law, uh, the uh, first officer, died in Canton of it. And there are records all up to that point, about once a year arrival, uh, of Dowdall coming in from Ireland, from Antwerp, from Canton, uh, from Canton, 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 his last several years of trips were Canton. And he always seemed to come back into the port of New York in April, April 20th, 16th, 23rd. And it was an annual thing. Now, Hubble and Dowdall and Sterling then were followed by uh, Captain Deliverance Pulaski Benjamin in the search for tea and silks and Canton wear. We own five charts that were, that were uh, uh, used by Benjamin, and uh, they're over uh, on the other side of the uh, room here tonight, uh, and they show where he traveled. They were marked up by him and then erased and then marked up again and erased. And from the markings, you can see where he traveled. All of the navigation marks have been erased. Enough remain to tell a story. Uh, let's see a slide. That is uh, a, a ship of about the period we're talking about now. She's not as, as uh, clean as, as uh, Clipper. She's, she's kind of uh, uh, bluffed at the bow and, and, uh, and uh, uh, a bit bluffed in, in the uh, stern. But she's approaching the sail plan and, and the lines that you're going to see in the beautiful shipper, uh, in Clippers later on. But the charts uh, of uh, Benjamin's are published for the East India Company between 1819 1831. And the last of the uh, charts there uh, shows part of the East Indies south of Singapore. Uh, it shows that, that uh, he seemed to have traveled uh, through the uh, Straits of Gaspar and uh, he seems to have gone to uh, Batavia, Java. Now, Batavia is a place where he would go to buy coffee, usually. Uh, he seems to have gone around toward India. That might be where you uh, go to buy pepper, that kind of thing. And it's interesting that this chart was published just about the same time when Stratford's Lieutenant Sands was serving in the Navy aboard the USS Franklin, protecting American ships in these very same waters. 
Now, uh, while he was sailing the ship Panama, uh, another slide there for me. While uh, 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 Benjamin was sailing the ship Panama in 1836, he added marks to these uh, charts. These charts weren't all that good. And sometimes he would, he would uh, uh, move uh, shoals or mark in new, new ones, all that kind of thing. And many of these charts, this kind of chart, was still being used in the Second World War because people had no better information. Many of those charts were based on reports from the China trade captains in the 1800s. Some of his markings, by the way, also show that the uh, ships uh, were traveling uh, three, four knots, indicating that there wasn't much wind in the area at this time. <clears throat> now, there are three possible reasons why Benjamin traveled down through these uh, straits. The first, that he went to the East Indies via the route around Africa. Well, he might have. They didn't go that way sometimes, but usually they went around uh, uh, under, under uh, South America, around Cape Horn. Most of his logs indicate the Cape Horn. The second might be that he traded for opium in the Indies, because uh, this had, had uh, replaced Spanish dollars as what the Chinese traders wanted. Uh, the uh, Yankee skippers would pick up opium uh, in, in the uh, uh, islands, come up to Canton, trade this for tea uh, with the Chinese. And this is what caused the Opium Wars in 1839. And uh, China, of course, lost the war. The British won it. And uh, more Chinese ports were opened up as a result of this. But opium was one of the major items of trade in the 1830s. Uh, but thirdly, and quite likely, he went down there to trade for pepper or ginger or, or uh, other spices like that. One of his notes on one of the uh, charts on the Celebes Islands, he's got a handwritten note. All this coast and the adjacent islands are placed about 10 miles too far west on this chart, D.P. Benjamin. But that's the kind of thing you had to contend with. Uh, let's take a look at the next slide. We have here a chart of the, uh, uh, of the Canton Road. Over here is Portuguese Macau, and uh, here is Hong Kong. Uh, what you did was, was uh, take your boat 70 miles up the river. This little insert here shows the rest of it. And when you ended up right up in, uh, in there somewhere, you were at Wampola Reach. And that was as far as they let you go until after the Opium War. And uh, it's very interesting, if you look at the original of this chart later on, uh, you will see that they're using things like pagodas to take your sightings on. Uh, to make sure that you stay in the channel. Big pagodas, little pagodas, all that kind of thing. One bearing is taken uh, on Dragon's Cave, and another lines up a chop house with Saddle Hill, and so on. And pinpricks in those charts do show that he navigated right into Wampota Roads. Now, in 1837, he is reported to have brought the old Panama home from Canton in 99 days. And that's pretty good. Uh, Captain Sterling took 104 days with the York three years before that. Uh, Captain McEwen took 90 days with Sabina. Remember, we heard of Sabina before. Uh, Captain Hubble was sailing it when I mentioned it a little earlier. But Captain McEwen. And I haven't uh, traced down McEwen yet, but I suspect here is another Stratford captain. Now, in 1841, uh, this uh, Helena of Benjamin's was built in New York by William Webb. Now, she grows 600 tons. Remember earlier we talked about 200-ton vessels. Now we're talking 600 tons. And her sharp hull and heavy rig made her able to make as fast passage as the earlier Baltimore Clippers, while stowing a much greater tonnage. If you look in Carl Cutler's book, Greyhounds of the Sea, uh, you'll see the outline of the uh, hull of the ship, what she was shaped like, what Captain Benjamin's ship was shaped like. She wasn't a true clipper of the type built in the 1850s, although she was called a, a clipper. Got a slide? That is the true clipper of the 1850s. And you will find that the Helena would have had that kind of sail rig, but her hull wouldn't be quite as sleek as that. 
Helena sailed on her first voyage for Canton in 1841, uh, commanded by Benjamin. On December 4th that year, she came up with and she passed the United States ship of the line Delaware. And within 24 hours, Delaware was out of sight stern. Captain Benjamin's temper flared a few days later, by the way. He writes in his log, fresh breezes with much rain, house all afloat, not a dry spot in it. I wish the devil had all such houses. <laughs> now, although the weather wasn't especially favorable, he rounded the horn and made Valparaiso in 83 days, compared to 77 days for the same course in 1843. Uh, rounding, of rounding the horn, Captain Benjamin writes in his log, and he gives a latitude and longitude, and he says, fine breeze, southeast and cloudy weather, studding sails set below and aloft. This is the most remarkably good fortune I have ever heard of in doubling the Cape in the winter. We have had continued easterly winds now for four days, and the breeze is still fresh from the southeast, and the weather pleasant. The Lord be praised. Mm -hmm. uh, slide. Uh, one reason that uh, these record-breaking passages continue to occur is because these ship's captains were uh, engaged in, in a uh, uh, an operation together with the Navy's uh, depot of charts and instruments. Now that was run by a man named Lieutenant Matthew Fontaine Mori. And what Mori would do was to prepare charts like the one you see here. This is one of the South Atlantic. And uh, he would get together reports on the weather and the currents and the tides. And uh, he would prepare these charts and he would give them out free to these skippers. But in return for that, they had to give him their ship's log with this information in it. Then he'd prepare a new chart with more information on it. As a result, they knew what the wind was likely to be and what the currents were likely to be at different times of year, and they made much faster passages. And it did one other thing for us. Uh, because these logs were handed in, they were saved. And this is how we know what Captain Benjamin did uh, here. This log was saved for a period of time. Most of these logs are now in the National Archives. This particular one, unfortunately, didn't show up there. Somewhere between 1930 and now, it did get lost. But some of this information was, was taken out of it before then. Uh, in 1845, Benjamin broke a Trans-Pacific record by taking uh, Helena from uh, Kaleo to Hong Kong in 51 days. Helena was a fast ship. Uh, next, he got uh, a ship called Memnon, Slide. Memnon was a fine, sharp, heavily clipper, heavily sparred clipper of 1,068 tons. Is that the slide? Well, I don't know where the slide is. <laughs> we'll just leave it there. Everybody imagine Memnon. Right? <laughs> but he made some real fine time uh, with uh, Memnon. And uh, he retired from the sea before 1856, and he was really the last of the scrapping masters in the tea trade. Uh, according to, uh, we have a tape done at the Library of the Society, a tape of Mrs. Molly Clinton. According to Mrs. Clinton, who remembered Captain Benjamin from her childhood, the captain did have a fierce temper. And uh, I took this from the tape some time ago. Returning from one voyage, he was met by the minister who informed him of his wife's passing. The minister said she died loving the Lord. The hell she did, retorted the captain. She never loved anyone but me. <laughs> Let's switch gears for a few minutes. I want to talk about an admiral of American empire. Now, Joshua Sands is not a native Stratfordite. He was born in New York State and he served in the Navy for nearly 60 years. Uh, our evidence that he lived in Stratford at all stems from a few articles at Judson House, a modified Lindsley 1824 map with a house label, Captain J.R. Sands, USN, a sentence in Captain Hotchkiss' log written at Montevideo. I read you the sentence. Now, when and for how long he lived in Stratford, we're not sure, uh, but we do read of him in many other parts of the world start looking at naval history. This Captain Sands, Joshua Sands, was appointed a midshipman during the War of 1812. A 
June 18, 1812, as a matter of fact, he was appointed a midshipman. On the 7th of September that year, he reported up to Lake Ontario to Sackett's Harbor. Uh, a month before his Commodore arrived, actually, Isaac Chauncey was the name of the Commodore on Lake Ontario. Oliver Hazard Perry is the better known one, you know, he was over on Lake Erie, and uh, he was more active than Chauncey. But in November 1812, young Sands uh, cruised Lake Ontario aboard the gun brig Onita. Got a slide? That's not the slide. Uh, put it back under the blank. We'll get, I'll show you that other one later on. But uh, uh, he went through the uh, War of 1812 aboard several vessels uh, up there serving under uh, uh, Chauncey. In 1814, the frigate Superior was completed. Now they're building frigates up on, on uh, uh, Lake Ontario. Now a frigate's a pretty good vessel. You know, Constitution, Constellation, they were frigates. And that gives you an idea of the size of the vessels that eventually got built up there. In fact, they brought New York shipwrights up uh, to, to build some of these. But Sam served aboard the Superior until peace came. And then he was ordered to the USS Washington, a full ship of the line, one of the first of America's ships of the line. They were built after the War of 1812. Uh, the USS Washington was 74 guns. In 1816, Sam was ordered aboard that. During her two-year cruise to the Mediterranean, uh, American ships in those days as they are right now were in the, the uh, Mediterranean protecting uh, American shipping. But during that two-year cruise, uh, he was promoted to a lieutenant. Sands has made lieutenant in 1816. But the long years of peace meant no more promotions. There weren't many promotions in the U.S. Navy during this period of time. As lieutenant of the Sloop of War Hornet, he went to Spain in the Mediterranean in 1819. He went to Africa and the West Indies in 1820. He went to the South Seas aboard the Franklin, another ship of the line, 74, 1821 to 1824. He was in the New York Navy Yard, then to the Brazilian Squadron aboard the Sloop of War Vandalia, October 1828 to September 1830. And he was aboard the Rendezvous of New York for nearly six years. Finally, in 1840, the next promotion. 24 years of lieutenant. He made commander on February 23, 1840. And he stayed in the New York Navy Yard for a while. Finally, in 1847, he did get a chance for action. What had happened was, uh, back in 1836, Texas had declared its independence. And of course, Santa Ana moved in to crush the rebellion. But the Texans did win their independence. Nine years passed before they were allowed into the Union, however. But in 1846, President Polk ordered Zachary Taylor into action to protect Texas, and Congress declared war against Mexico. On March 9, 1847, American troops hit the beaches of Veracruz in the first amphibious operation in American history, and Commander Sands was there. Uh, we know because Raphael Sims, who was then uh, flag lieutenant uh, to the Commodore down there <coughs> describes the action. And he said something about Commodore Connor had previously directed the two steamers, two steamers now, Spitfire, Commander Tatnall, and Vixen, Commander Sands, with five gun schooners to anchor in line abreast of the beach to cover the landing in case any opposition should be made. This part of the movement had already been uh, handsomely executed. So Sands was in charge of, of a uh, steamer called Vixen uh, in the Mexican War. And incidentally, Commander Tatnall, the other man mentioned in here, I don't know who he is, and, I don't, and he isn't from Stratford, I don't think. But again, down in our museum, uh, we have an original one-copy handmade linen uh, uh, chart of the Dry Tortugas and the Florida Keys, and it's ascribed to a Commander Tatnall. So, here, some of the things we have locally here, uh, again, I'm, we're, I'm finding it in, in the history course. Well, after this, Sands returned to the Navy Yard, uh, was off in the East India Squadron in 1853 again, uh, promoted to captain in 1854, and later he's given command of the Sloop of War Susquehanna, 
and orders to the Mediterranean squadron. Now what was going on right about this time was that Cyrus Field had, uh, had got subsidies from the British and from the American government to lay a telegraph cable across the Atlantic, although it wasn't without opposition. One congressman wrote that he didn't want anything to do with England or Englishmen. And Henry David Thoreau 